This is Energy Thinks, a podcast about how the oil and gas industry can future-proof against rising social risk and lead the world into the energy future. I'm Tisha Schuler, your host and the principal of Adamantine Energy. This season, we're focusing on game-changing leadership for the oil and gas industry. With so much massive disruption underway, we all feel the press of this pressure and also of, of how we need to disrupt back ourselves. Within all of this, of course, is an opportunity, and we're gonna hear a lot about those opportunities today. I speak with Ajay Mehta, who's General Manager of New Energies Research and Technology at Shell. Ajay has spent nearly 25 years at Shell. He began in 1996 as a research engineer. His roles have touched so many aspects, EMP, upstream production, CO2 mitigation, He's a distinguished lecturer for the Society of Petroleum Engineers. He's a board member of the MIT Sustainability Initiative and holds many other board positions at the University of Houston, Rice University, UCLA. He maintains leadership influence within the National Renewable Energy Lab, Society of Asian Engineers and Scientists, and as you'll hear about on our conversation today with Greentown Labs in Houston. Uh, Ajay, as you'll hear, is just no joke, technically. He holds an MBA um, from MIT, a PhD in chemical engineering from Colorado School of Mines, and a bachelor's degree in chemical engineering from India's National Institute of Technology, Karnataka. To learn more about Energy Thinks podcast and our work at Adamantine, please visit our website at energythinks.com. I really hope you enjoy my conversation today with Ajay as much as I did. And one thing uh, to listen for is the really paradigm shifting partnership that they have just set up with Microsoft. Please enjoy. AJ, welcome. Thank you for joining me on the Energy Thinks podcast. Yeah, thank you, Tisha. I'm delighted to be here with you today. So AJ, from our earlier conversations that you and I have had and research I did preparing for this interview, I'm continually taken by your optimism. Um, your optimism that oil and gas leaders have it in us to transition our industry to the decarbonized energy future. Can you tell us a little bit about where your optimism comes from? And um, do you have faith that it is in fact the oil and gas industry that will be the ones who lead the world in through this transition? Yeah, no, thanks Tisha for that uh, question. Um, I'll try to answer your question in a couple of uh, different ways. Uh, first is more personal, is uh, that I'm intrinsically a very optimistic uh, person. You know, there's, uh, there's nothing that I truly believe we cannot uh, do if we put our minds to it. And that's kind of been the guiding principle for me in my life, pretty much how I've taken on any challenges, uh, you know, that have come uh, my way. Uh, but then more professionally uh, speaking, you know, I've had the unique uh, opportunity of spending 25 years in the oil and gas business, and which will now be transforming into a broader energy-based business. And uh, part of that has been uh, working on the front lines uh, with uh, you know, folks uh, who are engaged every day in the business of making uh, energy. Uh, and the creativity, passion, uh, you know, uh, zeal, uh, uh, commitment to the work that they do and belief in what, what we do uh, is just so inspiring uh, to kind of look back and kind of think about uh, you know, what this industry has achieved over the course of the last hundred years of uh, plus hundred years plus of its uh, existence. Uh, it, it's just, just amazing to think about. Uh, and so I truly believe that rather than being afraid of the energy transition, 
this is our moment to seize uh, uh, instead and think in terms of how we can use the knowledge and the know-how that we have uh, to transform the energy business as, as we know it. So I, I truly believe uh, that there's plenty of cause uh, for optimism across the board to show. Mm, I, I just love that. Optimism is infectious. And um, your optimism in particular, I always find infectious. Um, and we're going to need that optimism because um, the, our, our ambitions have to be high. And, and Shell has really been a global leader in, in ambition by pledging to achieve net zero by 2050 or sooner. And what I, I really love, because uh, as our listeners know, I have a personal pa passion for addressing energy poverty around the world. Shell has also um, pledged to provide reliable energy to 100 million people in the developing world. Now you lead Shell's new energies research and tech, so uh, no pressure. Um, how do you translate these ambitious goals into uh, your own business plan, the business plan for your, your group and your work ahead? Yeah, I think that's a great uh, question, uh, uh, Tisha. Uh, and yeah, indeed, no pressure at all. Uh, you know, uh, no, but, ser but seriously, uh, it, it's, uh, it's been a complete joy for me personally to have the opportunity over the last five years to lead uh, the group uh, called New Energies Research and uh, Technology inside Shell, mm -hmm. where we have uh, the opportunity to really look at what is the world going to look like a near term, mid term, a long term, and what are the solutions that we need to be putting into place so that we can be part of this uh, journey of, of energy transformation. Uh, one of the things that you know I have uh, consistently uh, spoken about both internally and externally is that the energy transition is gonna happen with or without us. So how mm -hmm. do we uh, ensure that we are you know, uh, not a bystander, but we are a player? And we truly mm. believe inside Shell that we want to be a player and we want to be part of, you know, of what the, uh, the future world is going to emerge uh, uh, into. Uh, however, there are no silver bullets uh, in any of this. And, uh, the reason why it's called a transition is because it's just that. It, it, it's going to evolve over the next several years and, and decades uh, to come. Uh, and the timing of our call is really excellent because just uh, last uh, week, uh, we have uh, uh, refreshed our shell uh, strategy in terms of how we think about you know, the, uh, the energy uh, transition uh, as a whole. And one of the uh, things that we have talked there uh, in our strategy uh, refresh is around getting to net zero. Uh, mm -hmm. Getting to net zero by, by 2050 is an overarching kind of business uh, goal that, that Shell has publicly talked about, but now we have kind of you know, doubled down on what we mean by that by providing a pathway to actually uh, get uh, to a net zero. Mm. Another aspect of our strategy is in uh, powering lives. And when we talk about powering lives, this kind of way of question around you know, uh, energy poverty also comes into place. Uh, you know, we have set a goal for ourselves that by 2030, we would like to get electricity to up to 100 million people that don't have it at the current time. And that's still not getting to the, the billion plus people that actually need it. So that's kind of another, uh, you know, very tangible uh, target uh, that we have as, as part of our mission as, as a company. Uh, the third uh, part there is around continuing to deliver shareholder value, um, mm. you know, and, and that's kind of, you know, the basis for any uh, company's, uh, you know, uh, uh, very existence. Uh, and, and then finally, respecting nature, you know, so all four of these uh, truly go uh, hand in glove together. Uh, but if I could just focus on, on two of those, because I find those to be the most uh, interesting ones, is that how do we get to net zero mm -hmm. and deliver shareholder value? Because that's truly where you get to this 
classic uh, confluence of carbon and capital. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and the way we kind of think about uh, this uh, transition is that uh, we are committed to spending up to two to three billion dollars a year uh, in kind of, you know, uh, growing our new energies or renewables and uh, integrated energy uh, solutions or business as we are uh, calling it uh, now going uh, forward to again act, uh, put a greater accent on the renewables uh, part of the uh, portfolio um, and kind of creating a very uh, uh, tangible you know a pathway with tangible milestones and deliverables to kind of get us to meet that ambition of getting to a net zero. And the only way we can do that is to also kind of hold the mirror in front of our, ourselves by having proof points uh, along the way. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the ways that we have done that is to actually set specific targets where we said by the end of this decade, within 10 years, uh, you know, we want to reduce our own net carbon footprint, uh, you know, by uh, 20%, uh, by 2035, getting to 45%, and then by 2050 to the 100%. And so these gives uh, these uh, you know targets give us some kind of uh, very specific things to to uh, aim for uh, as we kind of think about our entire portfolio and how that portfolio will transition over the coming uh, decades. Mm, thank you for for telling us about that. And in fact, this these sometimes seemingly contradictory goals of shareholder value and um, transitioning to decarbonizing energy future. I think it's really interesting the way you're, you're combining that work together. But let me push on one of the other pillars that you raised and just ask you um, about the 100 million people in the developing world. I noticed that this doesn't say, um, this isn't a focus on getting a light bulb into houses. This is a focus on reliable energy supply. Can you just tell us a little bit more about that? I have a keen interest in making sure that we actually globally set ambitious goals around addressing energy poverty rather than really superficial goals. Well, how are you, how are you thinking about that? Uh, yeah, no, I think uh, I'm happy to expand on that. Uh, you know, one of the things that I've been spending a fair bit of time in also uh, understanding is uh, uh, the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And, uh, you know, goal number seven in particular, uh, there specifically talks about how do you get access to affordable, reliable, and sustainable modern energy you know, mm -hmm. to everybody that needs it. And that's kind of the basis for eradication of uh, poverty. And uh, the way we've been thinking about this is uh, to uh, focus on places that of course uh, have uh, been impoverished from an energy perspective for a long time. Specifically, if you think about parts of Africa and Asia, which is where we are spending a lot of our, our time. And so when we think about it from that uh, perspective, what we are talking about here is not the kinds of solutions that might be uh, you know, fit for purpose in the developed world, mm -hmm. but thinking more in terms of decentralized uh, generation of uh, electricity, uh, you know, off-grid uh, energy mm -hmm. uh, access uh, to customers, uh, low cost infrastructure and infrastructure that can also be maintained locally. So it doesn't mm -hmm. require kind of, you know, a consultant to come in every time there's a breakdown of, of something inside of the system. And uh, those are the types of things that can only happen if you truly have you know, uh, your boots on the ground and you really try to understand what is the local environment uh, that you're operating in? What are the, the issues you know, that, that uh, people have to deal with on a daily, daily basis uh, there? And so it's not just about uh, you know, uh, provision of electricity, but also thinking about other fundamental questions like air quality, you know, mm -hmm. thinking about, uh, you know, some of the uh, uh, 
a ways in which uh, you know one of the ways in which there's lots of deaths uh, you know in the developing world is the use of open fires or traditional you know wood fired cooking stoves and the mm -hmm. like so how can you think about alternatives uh, to that with better cleaning uh, cleaner fuels that you know you could uh, you could provide uh, you know as an alternative to that so it's a much more kind of holistic uh, approach uh, but providing this uh, electricity is kind of you know one of the key parts that we see could be an enabler to get large parts of that uh, world out of that energy poverty. Mm, that's great. Thank you. So going in a little bit different uh, direction, Shell has announced some really interesting large-scale partnerships. And one that um, piqued my curiosity is one that you have uh, with Microsoft. Can you tell us a little bit about that uh, partnership and what you hope to accomplish? Yes, uh, no, thanks, uh, um, Tisha. So Shell and uh, Microsoft have had a uh, partnership for many decades. Uh, you know, we've worked together on a number of different uh, solutions uh, in the, uh, especially in the artificial intelligence uh, space. Uh, we had a program for a few years uh, that's still ongoing called Shell.ai, where Microsoft and Shell uh, engineers have uh, worked to, together to provide solutions for a range of specific applications, ranging from uh, you know, uh, using a real-time optimization for some of our LNG operations. Uh, we've been working with uh, them on a, a, a tool that we call the Autonomous Integrity Recognition uh, Tool, uh, where again, we leverage the Azure uh, platform uh, for image recognition, uh, you know, uh, algorithms that mm -hmm. can help us identify equipment that might be susceptible uh, to corrosion. Uh, now, the question is, how do we take this to the next level? Because we have had some of these very specific tools but we are interested in more kind of a broader strategic uh, alliance that allows us to kind of drive the transformation of the energy system uh, as a whole, uh, because both companies have a keen interest in getting to the net zero uh, mm -hmm. you know, uh, uh, ambition. And Microsoft in, in particular has uh, a keen interest in getting 100% of its uh, supply coming in from renewable energy. I think uh, they've announced it by the end of this decade. Mm -hmm. And Shell is very much interested in being the provider of that renewable energy that can help, uh, you know, Microsoft's uh, ambition in this uh, space. So there are a number of different, uh, you know, uh, specific uh, uh, areas uh, that we hope to uh, have uh, coverage on under this uh, alliance, including, you know, innovation that we want to do through open ecosystems. Um, you know, one specific area where both Microsoft and uh, Shell have been partnering up is the open uh, footprint uh, for, uh, forum. That mm. is a mechanism, you know, for us to, uh, in a secure uh, manner and a consistent manner, disclose uh, emissions information mm. to governments, uh, NGOs, uh, you know, um, customers, other other stakeholders. So that that's a, something that we want to develop and grow uh, further. Um, we're also very interested in further leveraging the uh, Azure uh, platform to go beyond some of those specific tools that I uh, mentioned uh, to also help decarbonize our suppliers. You know, so how can we uh, come up with systems to be able to track the emissions from our supplies, our supply chain, and kind of uh, uh, that would enable us to, again, get a much, much cleaner understanding of what does it really take to uh, get to a net zero world. And then finally, we are also uh, exploring an opportunity to work with Microsoft in the CCUS uh, area, because mm. one of the things with CCUS, Tisha, as you know, is around, uh, you know, uh, it's, one, it's one part to put the CO2 underground, but it's another thing to be able to track it. Mm -hmm. And so if you combine some of, you know, some of these laser-based monitoring uh, technologies along with uh, you know, some of the AI-based algorithms that, uh, that enable you to track 
where the CO2 is at all times. So that gives you another powerful way to be able to differentiate uh, you know, between the signal and the noise. So those are the types of areas that we hope to cover with Microsoft. And we also have similar you know, plans with some of the other uh, you know, providers, including we've got some work ongoing with, with Amazon and Rolls-Royce and, and others. So it's a very interesting space where different industries are actually beginning to come together to work on a common problem. That's amazing. I expected your answer to be interesting, but I didn't expect it to be that interesting. And one of the things I really love about this, there's a number of things I love about it, but one is that there's been in the last year, this tension between tech and oil and gas and employees and tech companies saying, we don't want to work for oil and gas. And this partnership and alliance turns that on its head. Absolutely. Where together, Shell and Microsoft are not just decarbonizing your own system, but creating these, these greater contributions. Um, is, it, is it as magical and exciting in reality as it sounds to me? <laughs> I absolutely share your enthusiasm about that. And which is why kind of it's always been one of my, uh, I, I don't know if it's a pet peeve, but it's, uh, it's uh, I always kind of uh, take a step back and I kind of say, can we just listen to each other? You know, rather mm -hmm. than shouting at each other, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I mean it more broadly, right? Because uh, honestly, everybody wants the same thing at the end of the day. How do we mm -hmm. get to a place where we can all be in a world where we are providing more and cleaner uh, energy uh, solutions, uh, you know, that, that work for everybody. And, and sometimes it's just a matter of uh, perhaps talking over each other, but this mm -hmm. is probably an, uh, uh, you know, uh, example where, uh, yeah, it's a win-win for all, all sides, you know, whether it be, you know, uh, looking into the data centers, you know, which of course power, you know, uh, a lot of the work that we do in our modern world today. Well, how can we provide the energy for those data centers, you know, that comes from renewable energy, uh, you know, uh, sources. So there's just so many ways in which we can intersect uh, together uh, and not just in kind of in the tech industry and this, but more broadly, you know, which is why when I think about also decarbonization, one of the themes that, uh, you know, we've been talking about a fair bit internally is sectoral decarbonization because mm -hmm. you can't have a one size fits all you know solution for for every industry sector but if you start kind of slicing it by industry sector and come up with something that's fit for purpose you know for in a particular industry sector what might work for the tech industry and what one might be able to provide from for them will be very different uh, from what you might uh, you know uh, think of uh, for a heavy industry uh, sector, you know, when you think about decarbonizing iron and steel industry or cement industry, and yet it could be very different when you think about the transportation segment. And again, even there, you can go down further and say, okay, what are some of the solutions going to look like look like for aviation versus what might some of these solutions look look like for heavy duty trucking? So it's very much kind of a fit for purpose uh, sort of a, a lens. But I think the important step is to kind of recognize that and then start coming together to work together uh, towards uh, finding these solutions. One of the things you mentioned that I, I really am interested in is CCUS. Uh, all the projections show that to meet our decarbonization goals globally, we're going to need to have CCUS at scale. Mm -hmm. And obviously, Shaw, some projects, do you see um, some potential for us to really start to scale CCUS? And what kind of things do you think need to happen to get us there? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think CCUS uh, is essential in any scenario uh, that you look at uh, for the future. And again, it's like take your pick in terms of which scenario you, you want to trust and, and believe in, you know, whether it be 
the IEA scenario, it be the shell scenarios, uh, which we have also just recently uh, updated uh, last week, uh, you know, where we look at, at three different uh, pathways that the world uh, could uh, follow, including the one that we consider to be the one that's going to be essential, which is the Sky 1.5. A scenario which uh, kind of looks at uh, how would the world transform uh, mm. and at what pace would it need to transform, you know, if you're going to achieve a world where we do keep global warming uh, to less than 1.5 degrees C. Um, in any scenario you look at, uh, CCUS is kind of, you know, uh, the backbone of that. And mm -hmm. there's almost a implicit uh, kind of uh, uh, assumption that CCUS is going to happen. Uh, mm -hmm. The reality, however, is a little bit different from kind of what people are writing in uh, to these uh, projections, uh, which is that if you take a look at it uh, globally uh, right now, there's what less than 40 million tons per annum of uh, mm -hmm. CO2, which is really being stored, uh, you know, uh, via CCS or CCUS uh, kind of opportunities, uh, mainly at CCS at this time, the utilization part has been less uh, prominent than it, it could and should uh, be. But it has not been something, Tisha, that I believe has been inhibited due to lack of uh, technology. And it's, mm. it's been lack of, uh, you know, uh, the right kind of public-private uh, partnerships, you okay. know, which really need to kind of step up, you know, dramatically if we are going mm. to uh, get to where we need to go. Because uh, the potential for CCS is huge. You know, we, we are going to require CCS on the scale of, you know, 3 to 10 gigatons per annum. And we are right now at 40 million tons per annum. Mm -hmm. And so you're, you're talking about requiring a hundredfold increase in the scale, uh, you know, and it is not something that is inhibited by, uh, by technology. You know, the basins exist. We know where these uh, basins are. It's not a, uh, the constraint is not around, you know, finding sites, you know, uh, to, uh, to have uh, CO2 uh, sequestered. Uh, we are beginning to get a lot of great insights into how we might utilize the CO2 also to make other end uh, products of, of use. Uh, so this is really a story around where it's not just technology, but technology and policy uh, needing to, to come together. And uh, yeah, there are some uh, green shoots in, in that uh, space, uh, you know, with the 45Q program that the U.S. Uh, government has, has rolled out, certainly starts incentivizing, you know, a more CCS uh, projects, the uh, low carbon fuel standards in, in California is another uh, good one. You know, there are things coming out of Canada. Uh, we're hearing uh, about, you know, carbon tax in certain parts of the world. So again, take your pick of what that policy, uh, you know, should be. But having a, a carbon price, uh, you know, and, and having some incentives to enable this to happen, I really think uh, well, is going to be necessary to galvanize, uh, you know, what needs to happen in that uh, CCS uh, space. Mm. Um, uh, yeah, uh, but, but, but Tisha, to your, to your spe uh, uh, specific uh, question around what Shell doing in this space, we've been very active in this uh, uh, CCS uh, space for, uh, for a number of, of years, and we have a number of projects uh, uh, worldwide. You know, the, the flagship project that we have, of course, is the Quest uh, project in, in Canada. Um, this was really our first large-scale demonstration of kind of, you know, uh, getting CO2 from our Scotford, uh, you know, upgrader uh, up in, in Canada. Um, you know, uh, and uh, transporting that uh, CO2, um, you know, through a pipeline to an aquifer. Mm -hmm. And uh, since 2015 that this uh, project has been operational, we have already sequestered uh, 4 million tons uh, per annum, oh. uh, 4 million tons in aggregate of CO2, approximately about a million, uh, you know, tons uh, per year. Those are the types of projects that we're going to need. And we're going to need hundreds of projects like Quest 
you know, in, in the future. And yes, there are more projects which are on the horizon, you know, but, but I, I just don't think that, uh, that uh, there should be a limit or there is a limit on how many of these we need because that's what it's going to take to get from these millions of tons to get to the gigatons uh, uh, to, you know, to really make an impact at scale. We will be back to the Energy Thinks podcast momentarily, but if you work in the oil and gas industry, you understand that we are facing a massive set of disruptions that are unprecedented in our lifetime. This pandemic has upended the world in which we operate in. How can oil and gas leaders face these disruptions in ways that aren't just reactive, but proactive? Tisha Schuler's new book, The Game Changers Playbook, How Oil and Gas Leaders Thrive in an Era of Continuous Disruption, is that guide for oil and gas leaders who want to make sense of this moment and chart a better path forward. Order your copy today at energythinks.com backslash game changer. That's energythinks.com backslash game changer. And now back to the show. That, yes, I, I couldn't agree more. And one of the things you mentioned that's been an area we need to see more collaboration is in public-private partnerships. Um, and, and you sit on many, um, you, you hold many leadership positions that are going to be relevant <laughs> to these kind of partnerships in the future, um, including um, MIT, Rice, UCLA, University of Houston. Um, and uh, I'm particularly interested to hear a little bit more about um, your involvement with Greentown Labs. Uh, in the first season of this podcast, I interviewed their CEO and, and just smitten with their collaboration <laughs> with the oil and gas industry. So um, you, you're involved in all these really interesting areas of innovation. What, what are two R&D areas you're really excited about? Even if they're, even if they're far-fetched, what, what, sure. what are you excited? Yeah. Um... Yeah, a, a, a shout out first, I guess, for Emily is that yeah, she's fantastic <laughs> at uh, Greentown Labs. And we are just delighted that they have uh, expanded now into uh, Houston. Um, you know, we were one of the founding members of Greentown Labs in Boston and uh, likewise are continuing to support, uh, you know, their Oh, I didn't activities. realize that. Wow. Yes. That's amazing. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, the thing is that we need more Greentown Labs, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. because uh, that uh, and uh, I, I often would, would tell folks in Houston that it's a shame that I spend more of my time on the East Coast and the West Coast of the United States rather than in my own backyard in right. Texas, uh, you know, uh, because we have everything going for us right. in this uh, in the state, uh, you know, and uh, bring in some of these uh, uh, innovations uh, and these incubators into town uh, to kind of uh, show what's possible by kind of, you know, having uh, access uh, for entrepreneurs, uh, you know, and for startup companies to uh, be able to vet and test their ideas in real time mm -hmm. and have uh, the larger companies, uh, you know, which are in close proximity to go in and test those ideas at scale. I think it could be a fantastic, you know, win-win uh, situation for, for everybody involved. So we've been very, uh, you know, supportive of, uh, you know, incubators uh, and, and labs such as uh, Greentown Labs. We've also been are very active in supporting other, you know, incubators like this. Like on the West Coast, we have supported the Cyclotron uh, Lab, also a Cyclotron Road, uh, you know, um, act, uh, lab, which has been doing work with uh, the Berkeley uh, Labs. Uh, okay. And uh, we've also got our one of our own incubators that we started at uh, NREL with the National Renewable Energy Lab in Golden. In, in your backyard, uh, Tisha. That's right, right here. <laughs> so, which is, uh, uh, the, we call it GCXN, which is Game Changer powered by NREL. 
which is now into its uh, third year and it's fantastic. It's just working out so well where, uh, you know, uh, NREL has a very fantastic, you know, uh, mechanism to be able to uh, get an outreach to startup companies and innovators uh, that, uh, you know, uh, come based upon a call for proposals based upon areas of interest to us. And, uh, you know, we can pick, uh, you know, uh, activities that might uh, uh, enable them to get some seed funding uh, to get going. Uh, and some of these projects have actually moved from seed funded projects into investment opportunities, not just for Shell, but for the industry at, at large. So I think we're going to see more and more of these types of very innovative uh, partnerships, uh, you know, coming into play. Um, to your question around uh, the, uh, uh, you know, innovations and R&D side, uh, yeah, one of the luxuries of this job and one of the pleasures of my, my job is to be able to spend so much time with some of the leading thinkers in this uh, field internally and uh, externally with the number of partnerships we have, not just in the United States, but also in Europe, uh, Asia, Brazil, uh, mm -hmm. where people are really working on, on cutting edge, uh, you know, uh, kind of technologies that can truly transform the energy sector in the, in the future. Um, one of the areas that uh, I have been very, uh, you know, intrigued by uh, for a few years and uh, which we have been working on both internally and externally is the whole area around power to liquids. Mm. You know, um, so, and what power to liquids really is all about or PTL as we call it internally, um, it, it goes by the same name, it goes by other names like some people call it solar fuels, uh, you know, mm. uh, some people call it net zero fuels, but it's essentially what uh, power to liquids is all about is uh, how do you use the power of the sun as a starting point uh, and go all the way uh, to making a synthetic fuel. Uh, you know, because regardless, again, of how, uh, you know, the energy transition unfolds, we recognize that there are going to be sectors uh, such as aviation, long distance, uh, trucking, uh, shipping, which will still require liquid fuels. So now can you imagine a future in which uh, you can start thinking about making some of these synthetic uh, fuels, liquid mm -hmm. fuels, uh, uh, you know, uh, but now your starting point is uh, renewable energy that uh, is being generated either by, by you know, large scale integrated solar farms or offshore wind. And then once you have access to low cost electricity, then you can split water to make hydrogen at scale. And uh, then if you think about the next step, which is uh, capturing CO2 initially from point sources and then eventually from, from the air through direct mm -hmm. air capture uh, technologies. Now you have the two raw materials, the two ingredients, you know, you have hydrogen and you have CO2. You bring those together and you can make syngas. And once mm -hmm. you have made synthetic gas, you can pretty much, we know what to do downstream of that. You know, mm -hmm. we can, we can uh, apply Fischer-Tropes technology or other electrochemical pathways to make a molecule on demand. And so while all this might sound like a science fiction, uh, it's actually beginning to become reality much sooner than people uh, have actually thought. You know, uh, we've been working on this at least for about a decade inside uh, Shell. Uh, but just uh, last uh, week, we announced uh, in a partnership, uh, you know, with, with, uh, with KLM and others, the first uh, flight that took off from uh, Schiphol Airport in the Netherlands uh, to uh, Madrid, uh, which was powered with 500 uh, liters of synthetic kerosene that we'd made in our lab. Oh, that's uh, in, so exciting. In, in Amsterdam. So, uh, you know, so when you think about the future of aviation and you think about synthetic aviation fuels, yeah, these things can happen. Yes, currently mm -hmm. the price points for these will be very high, 
But those are the types of things that we need to be thinking about. Uh, what are some of the things that will become reality in a 10-year, 15-year, 20-year sort of time framework? But you know, a lot of the thinking uh, and the intellectual capital of all that is being invested in right now in private companies, academia, national labs. And those are the sorts of things that really keep me excited, uh, Tisha. Mm, they, they are so exciting. And that was the most straightforward explanation I've ever heard of sin gas before. So thank or sin fuels. <laughs> so thank you. It's uh, it's always been a bit of a mystery what we're talking about. And now yes. all our listeners have a good idea. Um, so I love all these collaborations you have. And a lot of our audience for this podcast are oil and gas leaders, but they work at smaller companies and they might be uh-huh. um, mid upstream or midstream, you know, mid-sized uh, to the large independents in the U.S. Yes. And because you've been in this space and now um, many, many oil and gas companies are thinking about their role in the energy future. What do you think that oil and gas uh, leaders need to know about what this space requires um, or and or what advice do you have for them on how to uh, how to get their companies engaged in this kind of innovation? Yes. Uh, no, I think that's a great uh, question. Um, one of the things that I would uh, think of is uh, uh, for oil and gas companies, uh, you know, as you mentioned, smaller companies or mid, uh, mid-sized companies also that want to get into, or even the larger integrated majors and the like, mm-hmm. uh, is uh, to A, not be afraid to take chances. Uh, you know, uh, and try new things. Because the only way we are going to get to where we need to go is uh, uh, by deployment. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, uh, and uh, some of these things that we are talking about, you know, when I gave you the example of the synthetic aviation fuels, you know, um, you know, a hydrogen economy is something that people have talked about for a couple of decades, maybe now is the time we we truly believe it is. But the only way that you can get these, uh, you know, to be deployed at scale is by doing it. You know, so I, I think one of the uh, reflections that I've had in this uh, space is that we have to get to a point where we are less uh, coy about uh, taking new innovations off the shelf mm. and trying them and mm-hmm. recognizing with eyes wide open that some of these may not work, mm-hmm. uh, but we've got to go through that whole path of, of trying to figure out which are the ones which really you know, are, are gonna be um, tangible solutions for the future. And also recognizing that it's not going to be a one-size-fits-all, you know. Mm-hmm. So we've we've got to differentiate between what might work for a particular application, may not be ubiquitously applicable for for other uh, you know uh, parts of even just the oil and gas uh, industry. You know, so that would be kind of uh, you know uh, one thing that I would uh, I would say you know would be good to have that belief system that uh, you know that that the energy transition is not something that to to be scared about, but that we we've got to we've got to kind of get into the deployment uh, state of mind and, and trying new things. I, I love that idea because we talk a lot with our clients about the role of failure in innovation mm-hmm. and the, the, the different um, kind of posture we have to have in this entrepreneurial mindset around yes. failure. So I think you hit on that really well. And let me just ask you about um, in my, in my book, I, I like to, encourage oil and gas leaders to draw upon their values because this work we're doing right now is hard. It's, it's, we're being yes. disrupted and now we're challenged to be disruptors ourselves. So AJ, tell us a little bit about yourself. What values do you 
draw upon for this, I mean, extraordinary work you're doing in a bit of a pressure cooker <laughs> environment <laughs> of, of public uh, public expectations, never mind, you know, investor expectations. What values do you bring to this work personally? Yeah, uh, I, I think I've been uh, very fortunate uh, in, in that uh, regard, uh, Tisha, because uh, when I think about uh, values, uh, you know, you uh, you want to be kind of working in a company where your personal values kind of match, uh, you know, with the corporate values. And mm -hmm. and uh, I was reflecting on this, uh, by the way, when I read your very fine book, because I think when I talked to you the last time, I'd mentioned to you that I'd actually gone and bought your book, The Game Changers uh, Playbook. And I loved it, by the way. Thank you. Uh, because uh, you very nicely have articulated uh, something that I said, you know, this is because you talk about millennials and how millennials kind of, you know, look at uh, the world, which, uh, uh, which I, as I was reading it, I said, I'm not a millennial, but I feel exactly the same way, <laughs> you know, <laughs> as the millennials do, <laughs> uh, you know, about that uh, kind of getting that, uh, you know, uh, overlap between your personal values and, and, uh, and corporate values. So, so when I think about it from, from that lens, you know, uh, at, at kind of an overarching level, you know, the three values that we talk about uh, a, a lot in Shell are around kind of honesty, integrity, and respect, you know, mm. for people. Uh, and those three very much overlap, uh, you know, with my own. So I haven't really had to kind of, uh, you know, look uh, too far to kind of mm -hmm. see, you know, how do I tap into, into what I believe in already. Uh, but the one thing that I perhaps have uh, done, especially over the course of this past year with the pandemic and uh, having to, uh, you know, um, to cope with the aftermath of that is to dig deeper. Mm. Uh, you know, uh, what does resiliency truly mean? And mm. not just resiliency for self, but uh, what does resiliency mean for, 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 a, for a team, for a group, for an organization? Mm. Uh, how do you uh, translate, uh, you know, what you might believe in very, uh, very deeply, but how do you communicate that uh, message? And sometimes how do you communicate a tough message, mm -hmm. uh, you, know, uh, you know, in an effective uh, manner? Uh, how do you ask people to be resilient in light of the fact that uh, there are personal impacts? Uh, you know, as we are, of, of course, also going through the energy transition, uh, it is going to mean that there are, there are going to be, you know, uh, the changes in kind of, you know, jobs and, and kind of, you know, the kind of nature of the work that people do. Uh, how, how do you dig deeper and kind of tell folks to invest in themselves to be able to, you know, come out of this on, on the other side? So. So I think some of the things that I perhaps might have taken for granted uh, in the mm -hmm. past, I've learned, uh, you know, how to uh, articulate them in a, in a little bit more uh, open uh, manner, uh, so that I can kind of just lay it all out there, uh, mm -hmm. and kind of practice my my values, uh, you know, in 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 real time. Oh, that's really that's really nice, and of course, we're also doing all of that over Zoom, so there's nothing quite like. <laughs> Figuring out how to uh, be authentic and inspiring over a video. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. yes. Um, you're you're certainly my first guest um, who's a millennial in a in an executive's body. So I think that's pretty fun <laughs> and interesting. Um, do you have any thoughts about how we as an industry should best harness? are millennial secret weapons. How do, you, how do you work with millennials with, within your company to bring out all they have to offer? Uh, yeah, Disha, uh, uh, I, I, one of the joys of uh, working uh, you know, with millennials uh, is uh, 
that uh, they tell you exactly what they think. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, so I don't, they, they, there's no guesswork. <laughs> you know, uh, it's a dream relationship. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, yes. Yeah. Uh, but, but, I, but I mean that, uh, you know, in, in, in all honesty, because uh, I, I love that, uh, you know, in uh, um, one of the things that I've learned in, in working with the, with the millennials is to, to be, uh, to be very respectful uh, and authentic in listening and mm. in listening uh, carefully. You know, uh, the, they will very quickly pick up if you're being patronizing or condescending mm. in any way, you know, mm. whether, you, whether you're trying to, uh, whether you mean it or not. And sometimes, you know, we do have a bit of a old mindset uh, in, in uh, you know, uh, the kind of, oh, oh, what do they know? You know, they will, mm. once, once they, really see what real life is all about you know the, they will right. of course have a different uh, uh, viewpoint uh, but the number of things that the millennials have kind of brought to the table within our own company and the energy that they bring in with new solutions is staggering uh, mm. you know one of the things that i was reflecting upon uh, is just this last one year of this of work learning to work virtually uh, you know a, a lot of the tools that we are using right now the millennials have been using them for years right. already we are mm -hmm. just catching up, you mm -hmm. know, with, uh, with them. So, so kind of, you know, having a, a clear, again, uh, ear to the ground in, in, first of all, listening to, you know, what is it that uh, motivates them? What is it that, uh, you know, drives them? Uh, what sort of uh, inhibits them from, uh, you know, feeling uh, valued, you know, uh, and, and just kind of having that opportunity to have that uh, dialogue uh, with them on a more uh, consistent uh, basis, I truly believe can unlock a lot of, uh, of value again for, both uh, them as well as uh, for companies uh, like, like ours. I also truly believe that um, even though sometimes one might have an assumption that uh, they uh, are wanting to fight about uh, everything, uh, they are not actually wanting to fight. They just want to be listened to mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, and, and want to be part of the solution. You know? so, uh, so I think those are the sorts of things that I've personally anyway uh, picked up. And uh, I honestly, uh, you know, uh, enjoy spending a lot of my time, uh, you know, uh, working with them, uh, mm. you know. Yeah. So many good reminders in there about listening carefully and being authentic in our, in our engagement. Um, mm -hmm. Thank you for that. Uh, last question for you. Um, 2021 has all kinds of challenges ahead for us um, from recovering from the pandemic to accelerating our leadership into a decarbonizing energy future. You have a few, you know, little goals to try to work toward <laughs> in your, in your job. So AJ, how are you, how are you changing your leadership style to meet this moment? Yeah, uh, no, thanks, uh, you know, um, for asking that, uh, because again, it's uh, something where one, as I mentioned earlier, we have to kind of do a little bit of introspection. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, for, for me, what uh, that has uh, meant is uh, to be even more deliberate in uh, not making assumptions, uh, you know, and being conscious of the fact that uh, uh, one of the things that I might just be taking for granted may actually be helped by me being more vocal and articulate uh, about it. Uh, mm. Underpinning all of that, of course, is that you've got to be authentic because at mm. the end of the day, that's the only thing uh, that's uh, going to uh, matter, you know, to, to anybody. Uh, and so as long as you're kind of living your values and, and being authentic and expressing yourself, uh, you know, in a, uh, in a manner that's transparent, uh, I, I believe that goes a very, very long ways. 
so uh, so I honestly remain just uh, in intrinsically, as I mentioned earlier, optimistic about uh, you know what the future will bring. But I truly believe that collectively, you know, we will find the will and the way to seize this moment and make a difference. Mm, AJ, thank you. I'm so glad that you ended where we started with optimism. Uh, it's absolutely infectious. And I just want to thank you for your leadership. Our industry is lucky to have you at the helm of your division and your work. And thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Tisha. I really appreciate uh, you know, the conversation and you inviting me to this podcast. Thanks a lot. That's our episode for today. Thanks to Ajay Mehta for taking the time to share his insights with us. Uh, there were so many really interesting, game-changing um, ideas, uh, but the one that I enjoyed the most was learning more about Ajay's personal leadership style, the role that uh, self-reflection, authenticity, uh, careful listening, play, and his success. Uh, I'm sure, uh, perhaps like me, you were surprised by just how down to earth he is for such a technical person with so many um, broad responsibilities and leadership roles. Um, I also enjoyed that he's a millennial in a Gen Xer's body. That's just a fun uh, visual. <laughs> so I'd like to know what, what you found game changing. So visit our podcast website at energythinks.com podcast and let me know. You can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and other major podcast platforms. If you'd like what you're hearing, please take a moment and give us a rating. I wanna say thank you to Lindsay Gage, Michael Tanner, Scott Marshall. They all make this podcast possible. Thanks for listening to the Energy Thinks podcast. Until next time, I'm Tisha Schuler, wishing you and yours prosperity, happiness, and good health.